Welcome, everybody. Thank you for being here. Thank you for choosing to worship with us this morning, whether you're in person or you're online. Uh, if you're a guest with us, my name's Tim. I'm the pastor here, and it is a great honor and blessing to have you uh, with us this morning. How are we all feeling today? All right. All right. Like B minus. I like it. Cool. Um, good. All right. This morning, we are going to be in Galatians 4. Uh, so as you're turning there, i got a few, just a, a couple of quick announcements for you. One, um, for those who are attending in person, um, and I guess you can do it online as well. You just don't have the uh, anonymity, I guess. But uh, we have in the back on the soundboard a bunch of um, preaching feedback sheets that I would love for you to take one um, and fill it out as you're listening, not necessarily to this sermon, but to a sermon in the next couple of weeks as a way to give me some feedback, to give me some uh, ways where I can grow as a preacher because you guys are the ones stuck listening to me. I don't have to listen to me. Um, and so uh, if uh, you want to grab one of those sheets, and then, like I said, sometime in the next couple of weeks, Fill it out as you list it to a sermon. You can leave it in an offering plate. You can put it in my office door. You can mail it to me. If you want to sign your name, you can. If you don't want to, you don't have to. Just a way for me to get some feedback um, and grow as, uh, as I'm, as I'm uh, continuing to preach. So um, there's that. We have our community groups are up and running. Community groups uh, happen throughout the week, and it is a great way to connect, to build into one another, to um, find ways to strengthen each other's relationships and grow together uh, as uh, followers of Christ. Our um, mission statement here at CF is that we want to be becoming Christ-like and proclaiming Christ. And one of the ways we do that is through our community groups and growing together. So we have a group that meets Tuesday afternoons. We have Wednesday evenings, Thursday evenings, Friday evenings, Saturday mornings. Um, all of that information is back on the chalkboard. It's also on our website, so you can find all of those things as well. So we'd love to get you connected and plugged in, even if it's just for one week. Our groups are built to handle that so that if uh, even if you just have one week open, we'd love to get you plugged in and connected uh, even for that one week. So um, community come, make sure you come and check out a community group. And then uh, we are going to have a membership class coming up uh, in a few weeks. We're still locking down the actual date. So if you are not a member of CF but you are interested in becoming a member or even just finding out more about who it is that we are, what we do, what we love, what we believe, um, and what it looks like to be a member, we'd love to have you for that class. And we will provide for you too. So if you want to stick around and hang out after service with me and we can talk about membership, uh, that's coming up in the next couple of weeks. So, um, all right. I think that's it for announcements. As I said, we're going to be in Galatians 4. Uh, and well, before we get there, uh, I do want to thank our hospitality team. Uh, our hospitality team makes sure that this place um, looks good, feels good, and uh, they are at the door to provide hospitality, to provide a care, a friendly face, whether you're your first time here or this is home and been home forever the hope is that when you come here you feel welcomed and cared for and that is our hospitality team and now so more than ever uh in in these days people are looking for a place to land and a place to feel safe uh and our hospitality team does a great job of doing that for us to um, provide a, a safe and comfortable and welcoming atmosphere and so i'm so thankful for everybody who serves in that ministry if you are uh interested in doing that um really what it consists of is kind of making sure Sanctuary looks good in the morning to make sure there's no garbage or anything anywhere. And then really just being at the front door, saying, hey, welcoming people, answering some questions if we have guests. Uh, and so if you're interested in any of that, we'd love to get you connected. You can use a Connect card uh, that should be in the seat backs around you, or you can do it online on our website, and we can get you connected. Uh, if you have information about that or prayer requests or anything else, you can use those Connect cards and drop them in the offering plate later on in the service. Um, okay, so I want to start this morning uh, with just a quick story. Some of you may have heard it before. The north wind and the sun have an argument. 
Who's the strongest? Who's the best? They can't figure out who to, how to decide who's the best. They argue and argue, go round and round. They can't come up with a clear winner. And then the, the uh, north wind sees a man walking down the street. He says, first guy, first one to be able to get the man to take his coat off, you are the winner. And the sun agrees. The north wind goes first, and the north wind blows and blows as hard as the north wind can. It is howling. This story clearly happens in Chicago downtown. The north wind is barreling down on this guy. And the more and more the north wind blows, the tighter and tighter that man holds onto his jacket. The tighter and tighter he clings to it, the, the lower he tries to get under the wind. Finally, when the north wind stops blowing, the sun smiles on the man. First gently letting its warmth hit him, and then gradually getting warmer and warmer until the man takes off his coat. Story can have a deeper meaning, can teach us something. Sometimes stories like that, fables, parables, they're made up. And sometimes we can even look at real life events and take not only the from the actual events that happen, but also we can take deeper meanings from what happens and what transpires. That's what we have here today in the passage we're looking at this morning. We have a passage of scripture that's going to take some work. I'm going to be honest. If you're with us this morning, we're going to do a little bit of legwork today. I know I've said this at least once or twice in Galatians, but this is a difficult passage, a tricky passage that just one quick reading of it might kind of overwhelm us a little bit. So we're going to have to do a little bit of work this morning. And so uh, with this passage this morning, there's a, a lot of today's sermon is tied to the Old Testament. So if you're looking for something to study this week, if you're looking for something to read uh, this week, you can go and look at uh, some of the, what we're looking at this morning, which is Genesis 15 to 17, and then also Genesis 21. Uh, that's kind of your homework for this week if you want to go back and kind of get familiar with what we're going to talk about this morning. We're going to do a brief summary of all those things, so we're all on the same page. Um, but we are, uh, but those are good passages and good chapters to go back and look at. They will kind of reinforce and re-strengthen a little bit of what we're going to talk about this morning. And so um, that's the plan. We're going to dive in here. We're going to pray, and then we're going to dive in. And today we're going to answer the question, who is your mother? That's the big question we have today. Who is your mother? So I'm going to pray, and we will jump in. So please bow your heads and uh, pray with me. Heavenly Father, we thank you for today and for this opportunity to worship you, to celebrate you. God, we pray for our kids up in Grace Place and the kids who aren't here. Uh, We pray for our Grace Place volunteers and leaders and um, that that time, that that place would be one of safety, of comfort, um, that the the children of our church, whoever that they may be, may come and know uh, that who God is and that God loves them very much, that they are cared for. and that they are important to God and to us. Help us as a church to love the kids of our church well, to model for them what it looks like to be a community, to model for them what it looks like to be men and women who follow after you in the way that we worship, in the way that we um, study, in the way that we interact with one another, that uh, we might always um, be glorifying you in the way that we interact with one another and and pointing the kids of this church uh, toward you. God, we pray as we continue to walk through this pandemic. We pray as we continue to see um, struggles and pain and suffering because of this pandemic, Lord. We ask that you would move, that you would comfort, that you would heal, that you would do what only, literally only you can do and remove this from us so that uh, we might be able to 
stop seeing the restrictions and the frustrations and the arguments and the pain and the, the general suffering and lack of safety that has happened because of it. God, we pray for this winter season. God, we live in a city where we get to experience all of the seasons, sometimes all in one day. And in this, the end of January going into February, it's cold, it's dark, and not everybody has a warm place to be. Not everybody has provisions. Not everybody um, knows what tomorrow is going to bring, even based on where where they're going to get food or where they're going to sleep. God, we ask that you would provide, that you would comfort, that you would step in and, and protect for those who are vulnerable, those who are suffering, those who are hurting, that you would uh, make a way for them. And Lord, I pray for us, I pray for our community, that you would continue to strengthen us, build us together, unite us and not divide us, that you would build us up as we look to live this life that you have called us to, to be these lights of the world, that you would help us to do that together, to encourage one another, to pick one another up, and to serve one another. God, we thank you and praise you for all that you have done, all that you are doing, and all that you're going to do in and through us. Lord, as I preach this morning, let the words of my mouth and the meditations of all of our hearts be glorifying to you. We pray all of these things because of Jesus, and in his name, amen. All right, so usually we read the whole chapter, the whole passage, and then kind of go back into it. Uh, Today we're going to do something a little different. We're going to take it kind of piece by piece. And so uh, we're going to start in verse 21. And we're going to start with uh, our three kind of, if you're taking notes this morning, if you're with us and you're taking notes this morning, you're on home and you're taking notes this morning, our three kind of big points are the story, the allegory, and the promissory. The story, the allegory, the promissory. So we're going to start with the story in verse uh, 21 of chapter 4 of Galatians. Tell me, you who desire to be under the law, do you not listen to the law? For it is written that Abraham had two sons, one by a slave woman and one by a free woman. But the son of the slave was born according to the flesh, while the son of the free woman was born through the promise. Let's stop there. Paul has been addressing the Galatians, has been writing this letter to the Galatians in order to call them away from legalism, away away from this uh, this entrapment, this slavery that is being put upon them by Jewish leaders to say, you must be circumcised to be a child of God. You must follow the laws of the Jewish people to be a child of God. And Paul has been saying in every which way he possibly can, no, that's just not true. And here in verse 21, he's addressing those who want to cling to this legalism, those who want to cling to this way of living. He addresses them head on and says, tell me you who desire to be under the law, do you not listen to the law? Now, under the law does not mean follow the law. All of God's followers are called to follow the law. It's there for a purpose, right? We've talked about how though the law can restrict, and in these ways these Jewish leaders are using it to hurt and to bind people, in fact, the law is good. Because our God is good. God gave us the law. Therefore, the law is good. But when we talk about being under the law, that is using the law to try and win, earn, or impress your way to God. Using it to try and find your justification, your right standing with God based on your own actions. That's who he's referring to here. Paul says if that's you, and you are using the law to try and justify yourself, he says, have you actually read the thing? Do you know what you're doing? Or better yet, do you realize that what you are trying to do literally cannot be done, was never meant to be done, and will fail you and drive you not closer to God, but further away from him? 
The law can't do what you are trying to make it do. It's not built that way. It is lacking in justification, power, and ability. And so Paul once again dives into the Old Testament to help prove his point. We've talked about this earlier chapters where the Jewish leaders and the Pharisees, they were always big on telling people who their father was. Their father was Abraham. That you could take their lineage and trace it all the way back to Abraham, to the beginning of all of this when God makes this promise to him. The Jewish people took solace and comfort and identity in tracing their lineage, tracing their heritage back to Abraham. And what Paul says here is he reminds them, look, that's great, you can trace yourself back to Abraham. But remember, Abraham had two sons which means there are two lines of descendants, and they are very, very different from one another. In Genesis 12, God promises Abraham that he would be a blessing, that he would have land, and that he would have descendants as many as the stars in the sky or the sand on the shore or, for us, the snow in the street. So much you can't even count it. God makes this promise about descendants, but Abraham and his wife Sarah, they are getting older and older. God makes this promise to Abraham, and then time keeps on slipping, slipping, slipping. They're getting older, and still no descendants, still no son. And in fact, on top of that, not only are they older and older, Sarah is barren. She's never been able to have a child. She knows that. She is barren. And so now we have this older couple. The wife is barren. They're promised the son, but no son is coming. And the two of them have this flickering light bulb moment. Sarah decides to give Abraham one of her servants so that he can get her pregnant, have the descendant, and thus complete the promise that God made. This was sadly a very common thing back then. The servant in Galatians called the slave woman, her name is Hagar. Abraham has sex with her, she gets pregnant, she has a son, his name is Ishmael. All of this is coming from those chapters, Genesis 15, through 17, and then also verse uh, chapter 21. So I'm just giving you kind of a quick summary here. Now it says in verse 23 of our passage, the son of the slave was born according to the flesh, while the son of the free woman was born through the promise. The son was born according to the flesh, meaning Abraham and Hagar had sex. She got pregnant just as it's meant to happen. It's done according to the flesh, according to natural human relations. Outside of, yes, there's the miracle of life, but outside of just the normal miracle of life that happens when two people do those things, no other supernatural thing was invested or was involved. There was no other. God didn't have to do something miraculous in that moment. That's why Paul says the, the son, Ishmael, is born according to the flesh. And so this son is born. Abraham has his descendant promise fulfilled, right? No. For years and years. Abraham pleads with God. And in chapter 21 he even says, of Genesis, he even says, won't you just accept Ishmael? We got the son. You promised the son. We got the son. Can't you just accept Ishmael? Won't he be the one who you will fulfill this promise through? And God says, no. He's not the answer to the promise. He's not the plan. He says, Sarah is going to have a baby and it'll be a boy. So you don't even need to do a gender reveal party. And on top of that, I'm going to give you the name. The name is going to be Isaac. So all of the planning right out the window. She's going to have a son in a year from now, and his name's going to be Isaac. At this point, by the time Isaac is born, Abraham is 100. Sarah is 90 years old. She conceives and gives birth to a boy, and they name him Isaac. And he is the answer to God's promise. Which in verse 23 is what Paul means when he says, This boy 
is born of the free woman, born through promise. God promised that it would happen, and he alone could make it, ha- make it happen, and he alone does make it happen, and he fulfills his promise to Abraham and Sarah. So brief recap. We have one man, Abraham, two women, Hagar the slave, Sarah the free. From those women, each have a son. So we have two sons, Ishmael from Hagar via the flesh, and Isaac from Sarah via the promise. We're all caught up? We're good? Yes? Okay, good. That's the story. Now is where it gets interesting. Now we have the allegory. Verse 24, we'll pick it up there. This may be interpreted allegorically. These women are two covenants. One is from Mount Sinai bearing children for slavery. She is Hagar. Now Hagar is Mount Sinai in Arabia. She corresponds to the present Jerusalem, for she is in slavery with her children. But the Jerusalem above is free. And she is our mother. For it is written, Rejoice, O barren one who does not bear. Break forth and cry aloud, you who are not in labor. For the children of the desolate one will be more than those of one who has a husband. We'll stop there. Allegory. It's a story, an image, a poem that can be interpreted to have a deeper or secondary meaning. The tortoise and the hare, the chronicles of Narnia, Pilgrim's Progress, so on and so forth. Before we continue, I want to just a quick aside on on biblical interpretation. Because I think too often, too much of the Bible is interpreted with an eye toward allegory. Meaning we try to read into certain things or certain or change them for our own desires. One of the biggest examples of this is David and Goliath. Right? I'm sure some of us have heard sermons or read books about like taking Goliath and like, what's your giant in your life? What's the big thing that's in your way? Here are the five stones to defeat your giant of procrastination, of broken relationships, whatever the case might be. We try and pigeonhole, we try and shoehorn our way into that story. We are not David in that story, and we are not Goliath in that story. If you really want to try and identify yourself with anybody in the David and Goliath story, we are the scared Israelites hiding in the tent who are in desperate need of a savior. There are those outside of Christianity that will say uh, all of the Bible is one big allegory. It's just a bunch of stories to communicate moral truths, except that historians and archaeologists and science continue to show the historical accuracies and realities of Scripture. And there are some within Christianity who want to pick and choose what is and isn't allegory. The most common revolves around Genesis 1 and 2 the creation account, and whether or not Adam and Eve are historical, actual people. Personally, when it comes to seven-day creation, the Bible says it's seven days. I'm going to take it at seven days. I think there's up for debate about are the days, eras, times, lineage. We could get into that discussion. As far as Adam and Eve being historical, Jesus said that they were historical, so I'm going to take Adam and Eve as being historical. That's a whole other sermon for a different day. The best way to know whether or not to take something in the Bible and we read it and we should treat it as allegory or metaphor or history or whatever case it might be is when the Bible tells us to do it. When Jesus tells a parable, that's not a historical account. It didn't actually happen. It's a story with a deeper meaning. He's trying to teach something. Now the events we already summarized from Genesis 15 to 17 and and chapter 21, that's historical. Those people, Abraham, Hagar, Sarah, Isaac, Ishmael, they're real. It happened. Paul's not saying any of that's made up. 
Rather, Paul is making a case for freedom in Christ over slavery to the law, and he is using the Old Testament to bring clarity. And he says these things happened. They happened hundreds and hundreds of years ago, and they actually happened. And you can also, even though they are actually historically accurate, you can also simultaneously look at these events and look at these people and see something else at play. He says, this may be interpreted allegorically. You can look at these two people. You can look at these two relationships that Abraham has with, his, with Sarah and with Hagar, and you can see something else happening here. So in this allegory, these two women represent two covenants, two relationships with God's people, two relationships initiated by God with the people. The first one we see in the first half of verse 24 and into, uh, into verse 25 or the second half, sorry. Uh, One is from Mount Sinai being children for slavery. She is Hagar. Now, Hagar is from Mount Sinai in Arabia. She corresponds to the present Jerusalem, for she is in slavery with her children. So you have this first covenant, and it's Hagar, and with her, Ishmael. She represents Mount Sinai, present Jerusalem, present for them, and slavery. Mount Sinai, that, when you hear Mount Sinai in the Old Testament, what do we think? What happened at Mount Sinai? Ten Commandments. No trick questions. That's the receiving of the law from God through Moses to the people. Ten Commandments happened there. And then like seven or eight other ones. A covenant is established between God and his people. Follow the law and you will live under the blessing of God forever. Paul says that this covenant is also tied to present day for them, present day Jerusalem. That's where God's people dwell. That's where the temple is. The most physically spiritual place in the world for them at that time is Jerusalem. You want to experience the presence of God, maybe you can do it outside of that, but if you want to experience the presence of God, you go to Jerusalem. You go to the temple. And it is by and large, this city is by and large filled with people who are Jewish and who are still living by and under the law. Under the law being key trying to justify themselves by their actions, by their works. Time and time again, though in throughout history, Jerusalem and its people represent rebellion against God. They kill the prophets, and ultimately they reject Jesus. And by living under the law, those people are trapped and enslaved to the law. And so Paul ties Hagar to the law and to Jerusalem because Abraham took it upon himself through his own actions with Hagar to try and fulfill the promise of God on his own. He tried to get the work done by himself without trusting God. God promised the son to Abraham. He got impatient and he lacked faith in God's promise. And so Abraham trusted himself over God and went outside of his marriage to conceive a son. You go outside the bounds of marriage, it's always going to end poorly every time. And it doesn't end well here. For generation after generation, the descendants of Ishmael and the descendants of Isaac will not only be in conflict with one another, but at times will go to war and just try to destroy one another. This connection by Paul to equate those under the law with slavery and with Hagar would be a huge slap in the face to anyone who hears it and a true, maybe the first, mic drop moment. The Jewish leaders always tied themselves to Abraham. They were the sons of Abraham. But the question Paul was raising is not, who's your father, but who's your mother? And genealogically and physically, yes, they could trace themselves all the way back through Sarah and the line of promise, this this lineage of people. 
But Paul's point is that spiritually speaking, they are not the children of the promise, but rather they are the children of the law and of the slave, and they themselves are slaves, children of Hagar. Now, some might hear Paul's allegory and how he takes Hagar and Ishmael and makes them kind of the negative of the two covenants. They're real people. And in reality, Hagar was a victim, right? She was a slave. She couldn't say no. She and Ishmael are victims. But again, we're talking allegory here. We know from a historical side of things that if you read those chapters in Genesis that though Ishmael is not the fulfillment of the promise, God does provide and protect Hagar and Ishmael and establishes a line of descendants for him. Paul's trying to prove a bigger point here. He says this one covenant was based on the law and it was taken away from what God intended and it was made about trying to go under the law, trying to justify, trying to work and establish yourself with God on your own. But there's another covenant. The one tied to Sarah in Paul's mind. We see it in verse 26 to 27. The Jerusalem above is free and she is our mother. For it is written, Rejoice, O barren one who does not bear. Break forth and cry aloud, you who are not in labor. For the children of the desolate one will be more than those of the one who has a husband. Sarah and her covenant includes Isaac. She represents the Jerusalem from above and freedom. The Jerusalem above, the Jerusalem on earth, known as the city of God where he dwells in the temple, but a day is coming when a new Jerusalem will be here, where the children of God will dwell in the midst of God, in the city of God forever. And we see it in Revelation 21 as John writes, I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and the sea was no more. And I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them, and they will be his people. And God himself will be with them as their God. In this New Jerusalem, there is freedom purchased for us by and through the life, death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus for the forgiveness of our sins through his sacrifice at the cross. This freedom, this eternal reality is the fulfillment of the promise made to Abraham and through him a descendant, singular, would bless the world. Jesus is that descendant who would defeat sin, Satan, hell, and death and offer us new life and freedom and eternal blessing in the presence of God Himself. That's why we call it the line of promise, this line of descendants that come after Isaac. It is the line of promise. It is the line that leads us all the way to David and all the way to Jesus. And it takes a lot of twists and turns. It even brings in people outside of the family of God. It brings in a bunch of liars and cheaters and prostitutes and all kinds of people that you would look at and say, God can't possibly use that person, but they are forever tied to the lineage of getting us to Jesus and Jesus getting to the cross and the cross getting us freedom. Paul connects all of this to Sarah, to the the woman who was much older than Hagar and who was barren, which at the time in that place, historically, she basically wasn't a person. If you were an older woman with no kids and no ability to have kids, you basically didn't exist. And so Paul quotes Isaiah 54 in verse 27. 
That's why in your Bibles it's, it's kind of indented or set apart. He's quoting Isaiah 54, and the prophet Isaiah is writing to the Israelites who are in the exile in Babylon. This happens hundreds of years after Abraham and hundreds of years before Paul. And for the Israelites, life seemed hopeless and helpless. The very concept of getting home, of being a people, of having a land and an identity, it seemed impossible. They were in exile, separated. Why? Because of their rebellion against God, because of their disobedience against God, and everything appeared to be ruined, that they had broken everything. But the prophet gives a word of hope. He tells Israel to sing and rejoice and cry out. Because though things look bleak, they will end in more blessing than you could possibly imagine. You are helpless, yes. You are beaten down, yes. And that's exactly where God thrives. Abraham and Sarah thought that the only way God could fulfill his promise was if they took matters into their own hands. Sarah was too old, too barren. The situation was too great to be overcome. They were helpless and hopeless. But God keeps his promises, and he does so in a supernatural way. And thousands of years later, there's another woman who it would be impossible for her to give birth, not because she was barren, but because she was a virgin. And God fulfills another promise supernaturally by giving her a baby boy, Jesus, the Messiah. Both are examples of God's faithfulness and God's grace. Paul takes the Galatians back to Genesis and back to Isaiah to tell them, look, things things seem upside down for you right now. These These leaders are telling you, you aren't good enough on your own. They're telling you, you aren't even good enough with your faith in Jesus, that you have to do something else. That the only way you can be good enough is by working, is by doing, is by relying on yourself. But that's just not the case. Because if salvation is really about works, if it's really just about what you can do, just as Hagar could give birth and Sarah couldn't, if it's all about us, then the only ones who are good enough or the only ones are the ones who are going to be able to work at it, who are going to be able to check the boxes, who have the right situation, who have the right upbringing, the right teachers, the right opportunities, the right thoughts that they can be saved on their own. And not only that, but if salvation really is about works, if we really can go under the law and fulfill our justification that way, then Jesus' work at the cross is for nothing. It's unnecessary. He suffers for no reason. But the gospel says something different. Because the gospel says it's not about us. It's not about our abilities. It's not about our attributes. It's not about our history or our background. You can be an immoral, spiritual outcast rejected by anyone and everyone who is ever seen as right or moral or Christian, and the gospel is for you. Tim Keller says, Grace is not just for fertile Hagar's, Hagar's, but for the barren Sarah's. If Sarah can have a future, so can you. The gospel is for the weak and the helpless and the hopeless, the downtrodden, the castaways, the forgotten, the rejected, the lost, the tired, the beaten, the vulnerable, the oppressed, the impressive, the rich, the got-it-all-togethers, the smart and the powerful, those seeking and those who are seeking but don't even know what they're looking for. There is no special factor or characteristic or ability. The gospel is not reserved for any specific kind of person. The gospel is for all people and is available to all people. You can't earn it and you don't have to. You can't win it and you couldn't even if you tried. You don't need to come before God full of reasons and excuses and evidence as to why you are good enough. 
Instead, you just show up empty-handed with the realization that it is only by and through the grace of God because of the death and resurrection of Jesus that we might stand before God one day accepted and welcomed and justified. The promise and the freedom are open and available to any and every person who would call on the name of Jesus to be saved. And it is by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone that that can happen. And that brings us, we're going to close with these last few verses. The promissory. We had the story, the allegory, the promissory. A promissory is something conveying or implying a promise. It is indicative of something to come. And what is to come for the follower of Christ is eternal, blessed rest and enjoyment of the presence of God forever. It is the experience of the struggle the strife, the temptation, the worry, the fear, the doubt, the sickness, the pain, all of that is over. Something better is coming, and that promise is tied to our present reality. And that's what Paul says in verse 28. He spells it out just in case you were confused. Now you, brothers and sisters, like Isaac, are children of promise. He says, you might be confused. You might hear all kinds of other stories. These Jewish leaders might be telling you one thing. Let me tell you the truth. You are children of the promise. Lest there be any confusion, Paul spells it out for them. If you have put your faith in Jesus and him alone for the forgiveness of your sins, you are children of the promise right now. Your mother is Sarah. Don't forget it. Don't act like you are part of another lineage. Don't go trying to erase your spiritual heritage and redraw the connections because you will tie yourself back to a life of spiritual slavery. The reason it's happening is because of false teachers and liars and corruptors. They existed back then and they exist today. They are wolves in sheep's clothing trying to tear down the church oftentimes from within. Verse 29, he says, Just as at the time, just as at that time he who was born according to the flesh persecuted him who was born according to the spirit, so also it is now. Growing up, Ishmael mocked and belittled Isaac because Ishmael was the first, because Ishmael was the older son, because everything about the way the world worked back then said that Ishmael is the benefactor. Ishmael is the one to get the inheritance, is the one that the promise would go through. And then we see throughout, throughout generations, as I said before, these two factors, these two descendants would continue to be at war with one another. Ishmael mocked Isaac Too much persecution, too much infighting comes from those who claim to be Christian. Too much arguing comes from within. We cut each other down over man-made issues that we have made and decided they're mountains when in actuality they're anthills. And usually it happens similarly to what we have seen in this letter. Someone with a little bit of power, whether official or self-granted, decide to change the rules, decide to make up new expectations, and they begin to bully and manipulate and be stubborn and harsh, all in the name of holiness that they don't truly believe in. Too often, these conflicts and issues happen within the church and within community settings. I could say without hyperbole, I've experienced more conflict, more confrontation, more accusations regarding faith from those who claim to be Christians than those who don't. 
we wonder why there's a whole generation called the nuns who want nothing to do with organized religion because when they look at the church, they see so much pain and suffering that has come from within our own communities. It's this giant neon sign saying, stay away because they're really messed up over there. So Paul's advice to that, to avoid those situations, to avoid that pain, to avoid those conflicts that are happening from within, he says in verse 30, what does scripture say? Cast out the slave woman and her son, for the son of the slave woman shall not inherit the son with the son of the free woman. Cut out that influence. Get rid and don't listen. It's not helpful. Cut it out. This legalistic, self-righteous, works righteousness, appearances, everything. So as long as it looks like I got it all together, I'll be fine. Nonsense. Parading around as Christianity is evil, unhelpful, and will damn you to hell. So Paul says, for the sake of everyone involved, cut it out from among you. Walk away, run away. When the Bible says flee temptation, sometimes it means literally get up and leave. That means be proactive and get away from it. Because their way isn't our way and the helpful way and the way of inheritance and life and freedom. There are two lines here. There are two descendants. There are two choices. It is under the law or under freedom. He says in verse 31, you aren't of that line. Brothers and sisters, we are not children of the slave, but of the free woman. He goes into chapter 5 and verse 1. It says, for freedom, Christ has set us free. Stand firm, therefore, and do not submit again to a yoke of slavery. Live as if you, as how you have been made to live. Live as one adopted into the family of God. Live free, not under slavery, not under the oppression of trying to be, act, say, and live in such a way that is going to somehow impress the creator of all existence to allow you into his presence. Instead, be, act, say, and live in such a way that acknowledges and glorifies and magnifies the God who would save you. The God who loves you and likes you and enjoys you and wants you to love and like and enjoy him. There's freedom there and grace there and rest there. We have more than enough in this broken world that is keeping us busy and distracted and exhausted. We don't need to add to it a fruitless pursuit of our own self-righteous glorification that will inevitably leave us broken and lost and subject to being conned into shackling ourselves to a false and phony God that is going to leave us dead. You were set free by Christ, so live as free. Live pursuing the God who set you free. Pursue knowing him, experiencing him, and enjoying him. And as you do that, as you find more and more about who God is, you find more of his character and his truth. It will guide you and lead you to show you what is true and what true freedom can look like. You were set free, Christian, so live like you are free. Let's pray. ones who Christ free is free indeed. Oh God, may those who know you, those who you call your children, may we embrace that and rest in that and live like that.
May we enjoy your presence. May we enjoy this new identity you have given us and live like we enjoy it. Live like we enjoy you. That pursuing you, that having a relationship with you is not a burden or something we have to do, but something we get to do. reality of the gospel, the reality of what Christ came to do is massive. And the reality is there's freedom there. Freedom to pursue you. Freedom to live knowing that our standing with you is set. Freedom to know that when we fail, that when we screw up, that when we get lost, that when we get turned around, that you will come looking for us, that you will come and carry us home. Freedom to know that we don't have to have it all together all the time. Freedom to know that we don't have to be perfect. Freedom to know that sometimes, God, it's just so exhausting to be here. To see the brokenness, to experience the brokenness. And we have the freedom to say, God, we're tired and we're beaten and broken and exhausted and it's just impressive that we're wearing pants today. Freedom to be real and honest. Freedom to pursue you even on the hard days. Freedom to know I don't have to, we don't have to act a certain way, live a certain way. That the expectation is not based on this world, but based on you. The expectation is we glorify you. We live in such a way that makes much of you, that we point others to you. God, you know that we're going to do that imperfectly. You know that we're going to do that, and it's going to be messy, even on our best days when we're trying. You don't need us, but you call us to be part of what you're doing, to call all things back to yourself, to redeem all things back to yourself. It's amazing and mystifying and mind-boggling. God, you have given us this new identity, this new relationship with you, this freedom. Help us to live free. Sometimes it's easier to go by the checklist. Sometimes it's easier to say, these are the things I got to accomplish. To be so driven on looking the part, acting the part, that we miss having an actual relationship with you, that we miss actually engaging with you and connecting with you. God, give us a heart and mind that desires to know you more, that desires to experience this freedom more and more. You have made us to be the lights of the world. That's a big undertaking. But you wouldn't call us to something that you wouldn't also equip us for. So God, help us to engage with the Holy Spirit, to hear, to listen, to respond, so that we can shine brightly as these lights you have made us to be. We pray all of these things because of Jesus and in his name.